If you have your Bibles with you this morning, hope you do. Revelation 7. Revelation 7. As you're finding your place there, I want to welcome Reach Church DeSoto, the venue service down the hall, and all those joining us online via our live stream. We're thankful you're with us this morning. Uh, Don't forget, all of you, Operation Christmas Child, those boxes, bring them back. We need to have them. The window is closing. Get them back. If you want to still participate, go online. Go to our website. You can uh, create a box online if you'd like to. Um, But uh, thank you for those that have already brought those back. We're appreciative. Uh, Also, uh, Discover LBC. Some of you, uh, maybe you're uh, wanting more information about what it looks like to join Lenexa Baptist Church, become a member here. We have a membership class this Wednesday night that will be available to you. So this Wednesday night, you can go online, you can register uh, for that class. Or if you just show up, we'll have plenty of room and plenty of stuff. So you come on, that's this coming Wednesday night. Well, Revelation 7, when we left off in uh, Revelation 6 with these six seals broken and opened by the lamb standing as if slain. And we got to that sixth and final seal and we saw the judgment of God poured out on the earth. We saw the sun uh, go dark. We saw the moon turn blood red. We saw the stars fall from the sky. The mountains fall. The islands are moved. A powerful picture of God's judgment. In fact, men uh, cry out for the mountains to fall on them. They'd rather have the mountains fall on them than to face the wrath of the Lamb. And we ended that chapter with a question. Who can stand in light of uh, the glory of God and his just wrath on earth? Who can stand? And when we come to chapter 7, we hit pause. And there's an interlude. And God is going to tell us who can stand. And he's going to speak about a group of people who are enormously important to God's purposes and plans uh, from the very beginning of Scripture. Well, with that in mind, let's uh, pray together, then we'll work our way through this chapter. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us this morning. God, I don't know uh, where everybody's been this morning or what their morning has been like, but I pray for this time, no matter where we're at today, God, we'd be able to set aside anything that would distract us from hearing your voice. Lord, I pray that you would speak by your power and your word and your spirit. Lord, anything that just comes from me, let it fall by the way. But I pray your word will go forth in power this morning and it will encourage those who need encouragement. God, it will uplift the downtrodden. And God, it would bring uh, critique, maybe discipline, maybe a warning to those who are not walking with you. And uh, Lord, I pray for anybody that doesn't know you, never placed their faith in Christ. I pray that they would see the glory of Christ, the beauty of his salvation, and the hope of heaven. And I pray that they would be drawn to him, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and they would know his salvation today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Revelation 7, look there at verse 1. It says, after this, uh, meaning a new scene. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. 
And so here at this new scene with this interlude, uh, John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. This is not some flat earth stuff. This is just another way of referring to the whole earth. And so they're standing at the four corners in these cardinal directions. And they're holding back the winds of God's judgment upon the land. And then he sees another angel arising from the ascending of the sun. So uh, from the east. And there comes this angel. And this angel has the seal of the living God. And he says, don't harm the earth until we have sealed God's bondservants. So here we see, in the midst of this tribulation, God is going to mark out a people unto himself and protect them from this outpouring of judgment. And we see this throughout Scripture. You'll remember when the Israelites were in Egypt and God was bringing judgment upon the Egyptians. There was a group of people who existed a little portion of Egypt called the land of Goshen. And there they were in Goshen. And while all these judgments were following on, falling on the rest of Egypt, the people in Goshen, God's marked out people, were protected. You remember even with that last final judgment, the angel of death, uh, you remember God marked out his people. They took the blood of an unblemished lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their house. And the angel of the Lord would pass over all those who entered into that home. And God marked out his people and he preserved them from judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God marks out his people and he protects them uh, from judgment. In fact, when it talks about in Ezekiel 9 to mark, it's the Hebrew word ta, which is, a, is like the sign of pi, almost like a cross. Almost like putting the blood of a lamb over your doorposts. And God marked out his people and protected them from judgment. Us as believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians, are we marked? Are we sealed? Yes, we are. Ephesians 1.13, Paul says we have been sealed in him. The promise of the Holy Spirit has sealed us. Uh, and he is a pledge guaranteeing our inheritance. God marks out his people. And here God marks out those who are, are his. Who is marked? Who does he mark? Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. We're sealed. God seals his people. Here we see Israel. Israel lives again. Why? Because God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Jeremiah, and the prophets that Israel would have their day. In fact, God declared in Isaiah 49, 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child or have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, God says, but I will not forget you, for I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God says to Israel, I will not forget you. And so throughout the Old Testament, just as we've studied Genesis, you'll remember in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, God scatters the people, and now you have nations. Nations are formed, and 
God says, I'm going to set apart a people unto myself. And he appears to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. And God speaks to him. And God makes a promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And in you, your seed, one individual, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we remember, we read there was Isaac and Jacob. And there were 12 tribes. And God made them into a great nation. And he redeemed them from the bondage of Egypt. And under the leadership of Joshua, he led them into the promised land. But what happened? This nation that was God's turned from God and they turned to what? They turned to idols. And God sent the Messiah, the one he said would come. And he came in the New Testament. And what did they do? They rejected their Messiah. They crucified him. They put him on a cross and they killed him. The third day, what did God do? He raised him up as an affirmation that he is who he said he was. And what did God do? He formed the church, the called out ones. And when the church begins, it's all Jewish. It's only Jews. But then what happens with this nation again? They begin to persecute the leadership and they try to kill Peter. And they killed Stephen and James. And they sought to kill Paul. And God turns his attention to who? To the Gentiles. And the rest of your New Testament, it's what? It's Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. And God turns his attention. He begins to draw in the Gentiles. But is God done with Israel? No, he's not. I want you to see this this morning. I've been wanting to go to Romans for a while. We got to do it this morning. You need to see it. Romans 11. I want you to turn there. Romans 11. One day we'll study through Romans. Romans 11. I'm going to give you an overview. We're just going to focus on verses 25 through 27. But I need to give you an overview. Because Paul in Romans 11. He teaches us about God's purposes and his plans for the Jewish people. And at the beginning of Romans 11. He tells us that there's a partial hardening of this nation. There's a partial hardening of the nation of Israel. That God is saving out a remnant, but for the most part, they have no eyes to see and they have no ears to hear. So when the gospel message is proclaimed, there's a veil that when the law is read, a veil lies over their eyes. And so there's a partial hardening. The, the, the hardening, though, what Paul says in verses 11 through 16 is it's, it's partial. It's not final. In fact, in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. He says, God's not done. And then he goes on to say that their transgression has become our salvation. Isn't this amazing? Their transgression, what was it? They put, they rejected Christ their Messiah. They put him on a cross. And what did God do? He said, you meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. And he turned their transgression, and he turned it around for our salvation so that now uh, their transgression becomes our treasure. We cherish the cross. And our salvation, Paul says, is to make the Jew jealous. In fact, in Deuteronomy 32, 21, God says, they made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I'll make them jealous with those who are not a people. I'll provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. You know what Paul says? He says our salvation is Jewish oriented. It is to make the Jew jealous. 
We owe our salvation to this nation. We, we receive a Jewish Messiah. God gives us their Bible. Our Bible is just 64 of the 66 books of our Bible were written by Jews. God gives the promise of the Spirit, that Old Testament promise. He gives it to us. God grants us to become children of God. We were, who were not a people have now become the people of God. God has written the law of God on our hearts, the law that was given to Moses. God has now written it on our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's an Old Testament promise to Israel. We have a personal, we have a personal relationship, not with just generically God. We have a personal relationship with who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember, even Naaman, he had to go not to just a river in his country. He had to go to the Jordan, and he had to, had to acknowledge the one true God of Israel. We have a personal relationship of the, with the one true God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How? Because we believed in a Jewish Messiah. This Jewish Messiah, by the way, who's a fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets that were given to who? The Jew. And so we receive Christ, we become a child of God, we become, as Peter says, as Gentiles, we become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And the Jew says, why are you so happy? And we tell them about Jesus and we tell them about the promise of the Spirit. And we tell them about the promises that we now know through faith in Christ. And they say, that's our promises. And you know what we say? Thank you very much. You didn't want them, we'll take them. And our salvation is intended. In fact, Paul says here in Romans 11, he magnifies his ministry to these Gentiles in order to draw some of his own countrymen to Christ. Our salvation is intended to make the Jew jealous. And then he says uh, in this chapter, I wish we could go into it, but he, in verse 18, what does he say? It's not you who supports the root, but the, the root supports you. We, we don't get too arrogant. He says, don't you get high in your own mind, in your own estimation. You know, we don't support the root. The root supports us. In other words, we owe our salvation to a Jewish Messiah. We, we, owe, we, we owe our Bible. We, we thank David for the root of David. We thank Judah for the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so we, are, we don't uh, support the root. The root supports us. This is interesting, too, because there's so many questions about why, as believers, do we honor and hold Israel in such high regard? Because the fact of the matter is, we have more uh, Palestinian brothers and sisters in Christ than we have Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And in fact, we have more Irish brothers and sisters in Christ than we have Israeli brothers and sisters. We got more German brothers and sisters in Christ than we have Israeli. And so the question that's often posed to us, then why, why do you honor this nation so much? Folks, we honor this nation because our salvation didn't originate from Germany. And it didn't originate from Palestine or Ireland or the United States. It, it, it originated from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the sons of Zion. So we hold Israel in high regard. And you can't read the Old Testament and not see that the nation of Israel holds a special place in the heart of God. 
In fact, Paul says here, if the root is holy, the whole branch is holy. Meaning, the root is what? It's the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise that I'll bless you. And in you, in your seed, one, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And God holds this nation in special regard. We regard them highly. Um, and we, we, we gain a warning from the nation of Israel. Because you know what Paul says here? If God didn't spare the Jew when they rejected Christ... Did God give the Jew a pass just because they were a Jew? No. Paul says if God didn't give them a pass, don't think he's going to give you a pass. Listen, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, look to the cross. There is grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness to anybody. doesn't matter where you originate from. Any who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But if you reject Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, you are in danger of facing the judgment of God. That's the warning. If, if God, these people that are so special to him, he didn't, he didn't spare them judgment when they rejected Christ, don't think you're going to get away with it. And so it's a warning to us. And uh, beyond this, it's funny because I think the thought was, can God still save a Jew? And you know what Paul says? Listen, if God can save us, we were, we're wild olive branches. If he can graft us in, you know, we don't trace our lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and most of us in this room. We trace our lineage back to barbaric tribes in Europe, pagan idol worshipers. He is saying if God can convert you to the worship of the one true God, don't think he's going to have any problem saving a Jew. He, that, that's no problem. You know, for us, when we trust in Christ, it's called conversion. We turn from pagan worship and idol, that stuff, we turn to the worship of the one true living God. For the, for the Jew, salvation is just the next logical step because everything in the Old Testament points them to Christ. And so uh, we see so much here that is God done with the, with the Jew? Paul says, no, he's not done. Your salvation is Jewish-oriented, and practically we're seeing a remnant brought in. God is still working amongst these people, and he hasn't forgot his promise. But then what I really wanted to see, boy, we got sidetracked there. But what I really want to see, look at verses 25 through 27. These are the verses that tell us what God is doing. What is God doing right now? This tells us. Look at verses 25 through 27. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. A mystery is something that's uh, referred to in the Old Testament, but it's not fully developed. He says, I'm going to let you, I'm going to develop something that's not fully developed in the Old Testament. I'm going to do it so that you don't become wise in your own estimation. In other words, when the church or when a Christian begins to see themselves as the ultimate fulfillment of God's purposes and plans, they can get a little big-headed. And Paul says, I don't want you to become that. You need to know what God is doing. And so he says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul says God's doing three things. There's going to be three things. One, he says there's a partial hardening to Israel. We see that occurring today. You know, um, I've had the opportunity on a couple of occasions to talk with a Jew. In fact, on one occasion, a Jewish rabbi about Jesus Christ, and I'm telling you, it's like a veil lies over their eyes. Do some come? Yes. One of the prayers of my life is that at one point I'll have an opportunity to lead a Jew to faith in Jesus Christ. But there's a partial hardening. Until what? He says until, that's the second thing. One is a pardoning. The second thing is until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Do you know what God is doing right now? He's turned his attention to the nations and he's drawing men and women to come and place their faith in Jesus Christ and know his salvation. It's like the ark, Noah's ark. 
and uh, Noah's building this ark of salvation. Wouldn't you, this is one of those moments in history I would have loved to have been there to see the animals drawn to the ark. I mean, what did the monkeys do in the tree? Hey, did you hear that voice? And they just start migrating. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen it? They just start migrating, and they see other animals coming. What are you doing? Well, I heard the call of God, and well, I did too, and they start coming. You know what that's a picture of? It's a picture of the church today. God's voice is going out. He's opening the eyes of those who cannot see the depth of their own sin so they can see their sin and see the glory of Christ, and they start migrating to the ark of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, and they find rest in him. That's what God is doing. And how many of God's elect will he save? All of them. Jesus said, all the Father has given to me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I'll certainly not cast out, but I will raise him up on the last day. God is drawing in the Gentiles, and he has an exact number. But then the third thing that he says here is that one day, one day when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God will, lost my place here, the fullness of the Gentile. And so all Israel will be saved, just as is written in verse 26. The deliverer will come from Zion. He'll remove ungodliness from Jacob until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Does this mean God will universally save every Jew? No, it does not. Paul has already talked about that. So what does it mean? What does it mean when it says all Israel will be saved? Well, in verse 26, I think it tells us because it says the deliverer will come and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. One day Christ is going to come. He'll remove the ungodly. Those are those who have received the mark of the beast, who have rejected Jesus Christ. He'll remove the ungodly and all of believing Israel that remains will be saved. Why is God gonna do this? Because he tells you that's the covenant that he's made. That's the promise that he made. Listen, God always keeps his promises. Now, where do we see this fulfilled? That there's a partial hardening. He's drawing in the Gentiles. But then one day, all of Israel, when do we see this fulfilled? Revelation chapter 7. So turn back with me to Revelation chapter 7. So have I beat that dead horse sufficiently? Is God done with Israel? No, he is not. You know, in Ezekiel, you remember the valley of the dry bones? And it says the bones come together, but there's no life until what happens? Until the spirit blows. The nation of Israel, I think this is really cool. The nation of Israel comes together. 1948, they become a nation. You know what we're waiting on? The spirit of God to blow. And they're going to come to life. Do you know where that happens? Revelation 7, in the midst of the tribulation, the time of Jacob's struggle, God will turn his attention again to this Jewish nation and there'll be 144,000 Jews and the light bulb will go on. They'll finally look on him who they have pierced. They will trust in Jesus Christ and they will begin to preach and revival will break out in the midst of the tribulation and a great multitude of people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. If that doesn't demonstrate the grace and mercy of God that even he's saving people in the midst of his tribulation and drawing men and women to himself. And by the way, if you've ever heard a Jewish person who comes to faith in Christ preach the gospel, it's amazing. They're the most powerful evangelists because they understand all of God's word and it comes together. So just a powerful picture here. The, the list that we see here, there are a couple of things I want to point out. The list that you see in Revelation 7 of the tribes of Israel um, there's 19 lists. There's 19 different ways in the Old Testament of listing out all the tribes of Israel. This list that we have here doesn't match any of them. And for that reason, there are some people who will say, well, then this list must be a reference to the church. 
In the New Testament, the word Israel is used 16 times. It is never used in reference to the church. There is no clear-cut reference to the church becoming Israel in all of God's word. And don't you think that's one of those things that would be important for enough for God to make it really plain in his word? And so here, so guess what? As I read this list of the nation of Israel and it says that they're Israelites and it calls them by their tribe, you know who I think it is? I think it's Israel. I'm a simpleton, you know? I believe it says what it, believe it, what it is and is what it says. Um, you know, there, there's others too that will read this and um, the commentary. And by the way, I've told you guys this, there's a lot of great scholars that disagree with me on this and they're far smarter than me, Okay. But I am just a simpleton, and I hold this view because it brings together all of God's word and just makes sense to me, and it allows me to read Revelation and not try to interpret it as some kind of symbols, and then it all becomes subjective, and I don't know where to go, and I just believe what it says. But there are those, when they look at this, they say that uh, how will we know who's a part of what tribe because the, the tribal records were lost in AD 7 when the temple was destroyed. Folks, do you really think God is in heaven saying, uh-oh, I lost my list. I don't, I don't know who belongs to what tribe. Now, I don't know who I'm going to put in what tribe or what place. No, I don't think this will be any problem for God. You look at this list, there's a couple other discrepancies. The tribe of Dan is not listed. Uh, Dan introduces idolatry to the nation. I believe this is a judgment upon the tribe of Dan for their introduction of idolatry. And in Ezekiel, we see that the tribe of Dan is in the kingdom, but they lose their right to lead because they introduced idolatry into this nation. And you'll see Ephraim not listed, Joseph is listed, a little different, but I take this to be Israel as it says it is. And so... Just picking up, uh, verses 9 through 10, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every uh, nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. So a great multitude, these are, these are tribulation saints, these are people that heard the preaching of the 144,000 and they turned to Christ and faith in him and they're faithful even unto death. It's an incredible picture of God's mercy and grace during this tribulation time and they're clothed in white robes, they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and they're waving palm branches like Palm Sunday, Christ is our king. And then look at verses 11 through 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All the angelic courses, courses now, now chime in and sing together in the sevenfold anthem of praise to God. Folks, this, this is beyond our imagination. One angel in the Old Testament kills 186,000 people. In Isaiah 6, the angels sing and the threshold of the temple shakes. Can you imagine when all the angelic realm begins to shout and sing praises to our God? It will be overwhelming. And each of these ideas here, the wisdom and honor and glory. Those are the highest thoughts of man. Those are the things that man longs for. And they culminate, they are found only perfectly in this one person who is God and all the heavenly realm worships. And then look with me at verses 13. It says, uh, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? It's a rhetorical question. In verse 14, I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. 
So here again, he makes it perfectly clear. These are tribulation saints who have turned to faith in Christ in the preaching of the 144,000, and they've been washed. Their, their robes are made white in the blood of the Lamb. In verse 15, for this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. I love this picture. He kind of spreads the tabernacle over his people. You remember David in the psalm said, One thing I've asked, and I will continually seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to meditate on his beauty and behold his glory. David said, I just want to stay in the temple. That's where I feel at home. That's where I feel protected. That's where I feel at peace. That's where I feel the most joy as I abide in God's presence. You ever feel that when you go to church? I hope you do sometimes. You come to church, you say, why can't we just stay right here? We feel at home. We're worshiping our king. We feel safe and secure. Folks, one day God will spread his tabernacle over us and and we will be with the Lord forever in his presence, safe and protected and perfectly pure in the presence of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll be at home. I just love that. Covered and the tabernacle spread over them. And then we see in verse uh, 16, let's pick back up. They will, hung, they, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. These are tribulation saints, meaning these are individuals in the midst of the tribulation that believe Christ and they did not receive the mark of the beast, meaning they could not do business. They couldn't buy food. There's a good chance that these tribulation saints, you know how they die? They die of starvation. They can't buy food, they can't sell food, they can't get water, and the sun beats down on them because they have no place to lay their head. They're kicked out of their homes. They're kicked out into the wilderness, into the desert, and they die of starvation, and the heat of the sun bears down on them. But then, what did Paul say? For I consider uh, these light and momentary afflictions are nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of, of glory that, that awaits us in heaven. They will one day enter into the presence of their king, and they'll hunger no more, they'll thirst no more, and the sun will beat down on them no more. They'll be spread over by the tabernacle in God's presence and in verse 17, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he'll guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that a powerful picture? The part that just stuck out to me, he'll guide them, what does it say? To the springs of the water of life. In scripture, the springs of the water of life is always a picture of just the joy and the life that God brings to his people. In the Garden of Eden, there was a, a river that separated into four other rivers, and Adam was to guard it, and it was just kind of a spring of life unto them. It brought joy and life. Uh, uh, David, you remember in Psalm 1, bless the man, and then he goes on, who delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, he'll become like a tree. What? That's firmly planted by a stream of water. He has just a constant source of life. It's the 23rd Psalm. Lead beside still waters. It's a source of life and a source of joy. And in the, in the temple area, in the city, they had diverted the water to provide a spring, the pool of Siloam that brought life to them. So that no matter what happened on the inside, they had life. In us, the Holy Spirit becomes a spring of life to us. But all of these things are a shadow of the eternal spring of life that exists with the Father in heaven. And one day we'll be at the source of it all. 
the source of every joy you've ever had in your heart and in your life, one day you'll dwell at the source. I think we enter in that presence and our minds will explode with the memory of every joy we've ever known. Think about the greatest joys you've ever had in your life. The greatest moments of joy where you're overwhelmed almost to the point of tears. You ever see something, you're someplace and you see something and you're immediately taken back to a moment in your life? It's almost like deja vu, isn't it? Wyatt is playing football. We were at a football game recently and and I'm sitting there with Faith and it's kind of a cold night and and it just took me back. Uh, There are a few things better than Friday nights in the fall at a football field. But when I was, I wasn't even in high school, but my brother was playing high school football, and I would go with my grandpa, and we'd watch my brother play. And Gramps, he could not sit and watch my brother play. He had to walk the fence line. He'd just walk all the way back and forth wherever the team was, and I'd walk with my granddad, who was just my hero. And I was just taken back like that, and I thought, that's joy. Boy, it didn't get much better than that, walking with my gramps and watching my brother on a Friday night in the fall. You ever see a picture? You hold a picture and it just takes you back to a moment and just a smile comes over your face. I had a picture in my desk drawer the other day and I was kind of cleaning out as I try to do my desk every now and then I pulled out and there's a picture. I had to text the picture to Faith. It's a picture of Faith. She's holding one of our boys in our first church, McGee Road Baptist Church. Why it couldn't have been two weeks old. And there's faith in a rocking chair, just rocking Wyatt. Boy, that's good. In the springtime, every spring, there's, there's certain smells, too. You ever have a smell that just takes you back to something? In the springtime, there's always a smell of springtime that takes me back to when uh, one of our boys, both our boys were born in March, but one in particular, he had trouble sleeping at night. And uh, Faith, when she was just exhausted and just really couldn't get him to calm down and, and I'd do everything, I'd take him. The final shift to let her get a little bit of rest. And all I knew to do, the only thing I knew, I went outside and when I went outside and walked with him, he just stopped crying. And so what I did, many mornings, I'd go in our backyard and I'd just walk circles. Our neighbors must have thought I was crazy. And eventually, he'd go to sleep. I can still smell. There's kudzu in the backyard just starting to spring and pine trees. And you just get that smell. And just take, and then, I go inside. He'd get asleep. I'd go inside and sit on the couch and watch re, reruns Andy Griffith's show. And I'm telling you, I can't hardly think about that. That's good stuff. Every great joy you've ever known in this world. And then multiply it by a million as you enter into the presence of the springs of the water of life, and he wipes away every tear from our eyes. What a day that will be. Do you see the picture here? God, don't you love God's word? I love this. All the loose ends, he just kind of ties them together, doesn't he? What about Israel? What are you going to do? God says, i got a plan. And here, in the midst of the tribulation, the spirit blows, and Israel comes to life. They preach, and the multitudes come in. And they exist in the glory of heaven. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, I want you to be there. To know that joy, but there's only one way. It's Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who died in your place.
You trust in him, not only will you have life today, you'll have eternal life with Father forever in heaven. Now, do we have a song? This morning, we got songs, plural. My dad, the other day, I was playing golf with him, and he said, you know, he, he, he can sometimes complain a little bit, too. You know, he said, uh, why don't y'all ever, we don't sing songs about heaven no more. I said, yes, we do. Stop it. We, just, we need to sing more songs about heaven. Well, he got it. So this morning we're doing five. How about that? Where's Pastor Bill at? <laughs> so I'm a terrible worship leader, but I can't help it. Uh, boy, if you, if you can't sing some of these songs with some joy in your heart, something's wrong with you. You need to take your pulse. You need to check know whether or not you actually know Jesus if you can't sing these songs and get excited. Um, these are songs I grew up singing. In our house, there was, always, uh, there was always something playing on one of them big old stereos, you know, with the speakers that are about this tall, you know, and that wide. And we'd get up in the morning, and we didn't watch any TV. We just had always had gospel quartets on. And... Uh, and I can't, I just, it just puts a song in my heart. So we're going, you got to stand as we do this. And you're going to have to sing loud because I'm not great. But let's sing about heaven. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, He'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Oh, they tell me of a far beyond the sky they tell me of a home far away oh they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise oh they tell me of an unclouded day oh the land of cloudless days oh the land of an unclouded day Oh, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Oh, they tell me of an unclouded day. Will the circle be unbroken? By and by, Lord, by and by. There's a better a home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. I got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. I got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. I got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. Way beyond the blue. Come on. Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me Way beyond the blue Some glad morning when this life is over I'll fly away in the morning When 
Father, we thank you this morning. What a good and gracious God you are. When we were dead in our transgressions and sins, you loved us. And you sent somebody, just as you said you would, the perfect Lamb of God who died in our place, so that we could be with you forever. Lord, I pray if there's somebody here this morning who doesn't know you, doesn't know your salvation, I pray that they would see the beauty of Christ who came and lived and died for them so that they could have the rela- a relationship with the God of all creation, Lord of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lord, I pray that they would see the depth of their own sin and the beauty of Christ who died for them and they would trust in, in Christ and him alone. Lord, for those of us that do know you, We have the hope of heaven. We know where we're headed. I pray that we would be urgent about telling others how they can know the hope of heaven, how they can have a personal relationship with you. God, give us boldness. Help us to live lives that support and lend credibility to the gospel message we proclaim. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond whatever way God's laid on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front. Maybe you want to unite with our church family, become a member of Lenexa Baptist Church. This is your time. Know this today. You'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.